What flashes of understanding? Which moments of ecstasy and despair? What memories linger in the days and months and years stacked up behind us? From the mundane to the monumental, from last Wednesday to last century, the fuzzy memories of yesterdays and yesteryears will be brought into crisp sonic relief by our stellar lineup of audio artists at Yesterday, a live listening party. Hi, I'm Kirby Fenwick, the creative producer of Yesterday, a live listening party. This recording was made at the 2019 Emerging Writers Festival. We hope you enjoy this eclectic mix of vibrant, challenging and hopeful stories. Hello, how are you? Um, thanks for coming out here tonight. My name's Camilla Hannon. I'm your host this evening. I'm a sound artist and audio producer. Welcome to Late Night Lit, yesterday a live listening party. To begin with, I'd like to acknowledge the First Nations, first storytellers and traditional owners on the land on which we meet tonight, the Boomerang and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. I'd also like to acknowledge Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander and other First Nations people who are here tonight. And I'd like to acknowledge that we're meeting on stolen land that was never ceded. So if we don't know our past, how can we know our future? This evening's Late Night Lit brings together artists to talk not just about what happened, but how it felt and how the resonances of these events affect the present and the future. What flashes of understanding, what moments of ecstasy and despair, what memories linger in the days, months and years stacked up behind us. From the mundane to the monumental, from last Wednesday to last century, the fuzzy memories of yesterdays and yesteryears are going to be brought into crisp, sonic relief, and I can't wait to hear it. Just a little bit of housekeeping, if you just have your phones off. We're going to be recording this evening, so um, we don't want to thing as sonic as it is. And we're going to run for about an hour tonight. Um, just to let you know, the Emerging Writers Festival is running till the 29th of June. There's heaps of stuff on the program, including these late night lit sessions. So have a look, if you haven't already, at their website. First up. What's kicking on is Anita Sanders. She's an Adelaide-based writer. Her fiction and articles have appeared in Theatre Review and Events and Empire Times and have been read at Quartz Shorts. She's also written theatre for South Australian Youth, Youth Arts Company, Australian Theatre for Young People, Adelaide Festival Centre and Melbourne Writers Theatre. And in the last couple of years, she's been producing and writing plays for New Wave Audio Theatre, which she was telling me about before, which sounds great. This evening, Anita is presenting a radio play monologue called Storm Chaser. It's a fictional reflection on the storms that inspired a dangerous passion. Please make a welcome.
It was the kind of day where your hair would have stuck to your sweaty neck if it wasn't so windy. The wind chopped at the windows with my neighbor's tree and yanked at the chimes as if a zealous child had grabbed it. A little wind never deterred me though. Even when I was a kid, I'd be on my bike pedaling into it. I was only 12 years old when I chased a storm right to its heart. The rain pelted while the sky crackled and my heart thundered with it. I, could, I couldn't help but smile. Nature's beautiful, even at her most furious. Anyway, on that hot day, I packed up the car with my storm gear and camera. I already had that storm chasing rhythm in me, that just concealed excitement. So, yeah, I, I didn't really have an inkling. The heat blustered through my car's AC as the road weaved up the hills. The local radio forecast was all good news to me, storms and lightning. I still kept my eye on the sky, calculating the swirl of the clouds, until I was sure I knew where to go. The conservation park had a clearing just a K in or so. One of those old farmhouses sat in the middle of it. The tin roof gone and the walls marred by graffiti. I was always surprised when I saw that the tree next to it had missed being tagged. I don't know why. Anyway, I set up my camera. The thunder rumbled above me and echoed off the valley. There was no flashes but I took a few photos. Check the settings. The valley roared next time and my eyes flicked to the sky. I wished for lightning. Lightning stabbed through the tree. The sound, I don't know if I could really say, but the tree kind of crinkled up, shattered and crackled. My heart thud, thud, thudded, and I could barely get my fingers to operate the camera to look at what I got were real cool, but I guess you've seen them. I had a big stupid smile on and I lined up the camera just in case lightning struck higher up the valley. Bolts went down over and over. If it had been a movie, I'd have tried to find Thor amongst it all. The hot wind pulled at my face and clothes. I realized it then each strike marked by a tower of smoke and it wasn't fizzling out, but growing. My first thought was the biggest swear I know because I suddenly knew how completely stupid I'd been. I didn't even get a call sound, just that Beep, beep, telling me the local fire department's lines were already chockers. All the trees on the valley's bowl rim stared down at me, and I did what every other animal in the bush was thinking. I ran. Pressed my foot as hard as I dared to the pedal and gripped the wheel as I roared the roller coaster heels. 
My mind played over the thought that no one but me knew I headed up here. God, the heat had got worse. I hadn't bothered with the aircon, but even the bluster from the window was putrid. That's when I flicked my eyes to the rearview mirror. The smoke had smothered the sky and my nose finally noticed what it had been breathing the whole time. Having the window up didn't make anything better. Sweat dripped down my arms and beneath my palms I held a pond. My palate rung as my tongue became sand and I eased off my speed as I fished out my water bottle. Sucked it all down. Then I saw it. An orange so bright, it was like a chunk of the sun nestled amongst skeleton trees. My fuel light decided this was the perfect moment to switch on. Forward wasn't an option. I gave my second most horrible swear word a go. It revealed nothing. I cast my eyes around and some trees still flashed their bright leaves while the sky somehow got blacker and the orange ahead stripped the gums. Cement barriers framed parts of the road and my brain popped up a sign, like from some cartoon playing a bush safety video. After pulling in close to a barrier, I switched off the car and took my keys to the boot. For once, using my boot like a treasure chest for stuff I didn't know what to do with paid off. I snapped up a spare water bottle and a wool blanket. I made myself cozy, lying in the back seat keeping as low as I could. Sweat got in my eyes and stung my whites, so I squeezed them shut. Books always say the characters double blink. It never sounds right, but I double blinked then. Night covered everything around me. I'd only had my eyes shut for a minute. This can't be happening. This can't be happening. But it was the fire cooled the night, and not even the 4pm sun could penetrate the smoke. I closed all the car's vents, and the red rain came, carried on bark and leaves. The wind gusted more, making a swilling star show of hot embers, like a never-ending sparkler, raging orange just kept on falling, turning the road to a fire carpet. I peeped at the bonnet. The paint blistered, but the metal kept its shape. My thoughts danced around the things I didn't want to recognise. Each turn almost spinning me down the rabbit hole of death, so I made my hands busy. Taking my camera out of its bag, I shot my ruby face. I shot different parts of the car's interior as extreme close-ups. I tested how close and how sharp I could get things. Then I kissed the end of the lens against the window. And the world stilled with each click. The heat lifted from my mind and I focused in on the shapes. The trees turned to a wrought iron fence line, holding and fueling the rage around it. 
I kept tweaking the settings, turning the dials and wondering what I should try. Through my lens, the flames started to make sense. Like wind to the clouds, it moved for a reason. I opened the door to the heart of a storm. Every moment in the heat, the flicks of bright and black felt new and simultaneously familiar. Like nature was showing me the other side of the coin I had ignored. I held my camera up again and fired, the automatic flash popping up. The nearby trees regained their texture for a second fraction and the flames held back. I smiled in that slither of time because there everything was frozen. The fire held its peaks and the colour gave its white edge. It was like seeing all the lightning strikes that birthed that fire all at once. The wild anger became beautiful. I took another shot and through the lens I saw what I never thought was coming. A fire truck. I waved it down. The team inside glared as they saw my camera. I know, you shouldn't go putting your neck on the line for just one photo. But I've never done it for the photographs. I started chasing storms so I could experience life untamed. Photography just lets me pay the fuel to keep going. I ain't wishing for it again. But when nature brews a storm, I will always be going out to it. My memories aren't scars, but a call to persist. Great, Anita. Wonderful. Storm chaser, Anita Sanders. Um, next up, uh, we have Manisha Engali, who's going to is a writer, performer who draws from mysticism, folklore, and science fiction. She's the creator of the Neptune podcast, which is a new podcast upcoming, an otherworldly interview series with artists and writers about dreams, visions, and hallucinations. Her debut poetry collection, Sugarcane Woman, meditates on magic, violence and Indo-Fijian exile. Manisha has performed at the Melbourne Writers' Festival, Queensland Poetry Festival, Bendigo Writers' Festival and Newstead Short Story Tattoo. She's been a writer in residence at Insidium Radical Library and a hot desk fellow at the Wheeler Centre. Manisha's work this evening is called Kissing You in Bombay. It's a memory about travelling the subcontinent with a true love. Thank you, Camilla. The sky was fire. The sky was fire. The sky was fire. Judia. Judia. I am you. And you are me. I am the sun. And 
you are a tree. Hashishwala by the river. Flowers, blood, moon, tooth, moon, tooth, moon, tooth. Flowers, blood, moon, tooth, moon, tooth, moon. His teeth, his teeth were crooked like mine used to be. Flowers, blood, moon, tooth, moon, tooth, moon, tooth. Flowers, blood, moon, tooth, moon, tooth, moon. River milk, sun fish, sun fish, sun fish. Kissing you in Bombay. Kissing you in Hanoi. Kissing you in Bombay. Kissing you. You are too high. Jiria. Jiria. You are too high. Hashishwala by the river. Come down. Hashishwala by the fire. Come down. Hashishwala by the goat. Cosmic daffodil, sideways flower, dandelion, dandelion, mammalian, color, mammalian, naga, mammalian, color, mammalian, naga, mammalian, color, mammalian, naga. Sideways flower, sideways flower, your petals are crooked like mine used to be. Come down, beetle, 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 beetle. Come down, in the land of no beetle, tape recorded bird sounds. Sublime jackal, sublime jackal, sublime pilgrim, sublime pilgrim. Bring a fish. Bring a fish. Bring a cow. Bring a fancy cow. I am an instrument. You are a mirror, mirror. You are a shisha, shisha. Meet me on the corner. Gabine, Gabine, Gabine.
The cyclonita hangs her laundry in between two banana trees, two banana trees. If I could save a dollar, if I could save a dollar, come down. If I could keep a fella come down if I could keep a fella but I am a cyclone eater I wash my clothes all day I am a cyclone eater I wash my clothes all day I was kissing the devil in Bombay. I was kissing the devil in Hanoi. His teeth were crooked like mine used to be. He looks like he's from my country. Make a son, make a son. Make a mosquito, make a mosquito, make a tiger, make a tiger. Hashishwala by the river whistles so sweetly, calls the devil so sweetly. He looks like he's from my country. Go home, go home, go home. Gabine, Gabine, Gabine. Thank you. Manisha Angai. It's really quite beautiful. I hope you're enjoying this evening. Late night lit, lots of sessions on as part of the Emerging Writers Festival, which I'm sure you all know about. Um, we're going to continue on with uh, our next performer, uh, Daisy Dutan. She's an audio engineer, podcaster, and creative producer based here in Melbourne. She enjoys working on cross-disciplinary projects. She's produced and engineered there's Food at Home, a poetry audio book which is written by Christopher James White. The book explores masculinity relationships and sonhood through the realm of fantasy. And tonight we're going to hear two selections from There's Food at Home, which are narrated by Christopher James White, Thick Like Blood and Perfect Day. Thick like blood. People don't take friendship very seriously anymore. They say blood is thicker than water. Except that's not the whole saying. The complete phrase is blood of the covenant is thicker than water of the womb. Having the opposite meaning. 
that the bonds we choose are greater than those we are born to. You are blood of the covenant, a bond that I chose, a friend. I am now haunted by memories of this choice, memories of the good old days, days when we believed that anything was possible. Even on days where we felt defeated and thought maybe only a few things were possible today, but tomorrow definitely anything was possible. Days when we get kicked out of fourth period bio for cracking ourselves up and disrupting. Days where we had tears streaming down our faces on the way to the principal's office. Days where we compared stories about the girls that we would kiss. Traded secrets of how to get them to kiss us. Told tall tales of first fucks to inspire the envy of all who heard them. Now though, people don't take friendship very seriously. A co-worker you had coffee with a couple of times who's never seen you cry is not a friend. People who are only fun to drink with but not depend on are not friends. Folks only text you back if they haven't found something more fun to do or not your friends. I've been a terrible friend to many people. Here's what a friend is. It's drinking in parking lots and driving around in your powder blue station wagon. Going to the Waffle House on Moreland Ave at 3 a.m. as a punctuation mark to every week. It's the night you got arrested at a concert high on mushrooms and I had to make your bail before your parents found out because you still had them convinced you weren't drinking or smoking in college. It's you looking at me like a crazy person when I said I didn't have money to go out and eat. Because for you, what's mine is yours was an assumed truth of the universe. It's when you took me to my first open mic at a small cafe in downtown Decatur. At the time, I mocked you for doing that soft poetry shit. But I understand now, because I wouldn't be able to talk to you without it. I just hope you can hear me from up here, wherever you are. Because people don't take friendship very seriously anymore. But man, they should. Friendship makes you better than you were on your own. I've never felt so sure that I could accomplish something stupid and reckless than when I've had you drunkenly encouraging my cocky bravado. I have never been inspired so thoroughly to make the world that I wanted out of the one I'd been given. So I got on a plane to the other side of the planet because I had to see what was out there now. You're the one who said we can't take over the world if we don't see it first. But when that first month became indefinite, our conversations became more infrequent. I say it's your fault, but maybe it's mine. Either way, the notes that make up the melody of our song fell out of key, and the voices we used to sing along to the chorus of one another's lies fell quiet. I left looking for adventure and a recognition. What I lost was home, loyalty, allegiance. I lost someone who knew me, a brother that would become a stranger on the other side of a planet. My fear is that I will have left to search the world for what I already had and succeed only in losing it, never to find it again. So now I spend my days wondering, is following your dreams me never being awake to the life in front of you? Is taking over the world more important than building a little world of your own? I'm so self-interested in my pursuit of a noteworthy life that I forgot that no man is an island, that people don't take friendship very seriously anymore. But I'm still here, so... Perfect day. Yesterday, I had the perfect day. 
I woke up before my alarm went off to find I had an extra hour to sleep in. I put on my jacket and found a $20 bill in the pocket. At work, Michelle, in administration, laughed at my joke. She totally digs me. And at lunch, I already had something ready to watch on Netflix as I sat down to eat a sandwich in my cubicle. At the bar after work, I was crowned their millionth customer, the prize for which was one free beer. Pretty great day. I got drunk and ended up in a fight. And I won. Though, perhaps more importantly, I fought. I felt like when I spoke, people listened. For a short time, I felt a leader among men. I led some of them into battle. They pledged fealty to me and raised their swords in my name. And so we overthrew tyrants and set their kingdoms ablaze. I made great works of art and was admired by many. I provided for those I loved and destroyed those I hated. I laughed until I wept, I wept until I had no worries. I lived in beautiful excess and enlightened contentment. I gorged myself at grand feasts of curried mutton and rich cake. My belly distended with contents of ambrosia, milk, and honey. Wine flowed like a river and liquor kept me warm in the cold. I laid down to bed with someone I loved and many that I didn't. I was surrounded by a court of friends in a grand palace with gold ceilings and amethyst tile. We lay and drink and eat and think and laugh and dream. We were merry. This was truly a perfect day. And so, I grew bored. Greedy, I lusted for something greater than perfection. I was without hardship, so my art had lost its soul and my admirers dwindled. My food grew bland in my mouth and my wine turned tart at my tongue. I heard all the jokes my entourage had to offer. My lover is no longer voracious or deviant enough to satisfy my taste. There was no fighting to be done. No bourgeoisie left to kill. I grew tired of this day. And so I sequestered myself to my quarters for the evening and laid down my head against a silken pillow. I woke up this morning anew in a pool of my own vomit on the floor of the bar I thought I'd want to fight in. And that was a perfect day. Uh, Daisy and Dutta, it's great. Um, next up, we have. Let's look at, um, Fiona, Fiona Murphy, is a poet, essayist, and podcaster. Her work has appeared in the Griffith Review, Kill Your Darlings, Overland, and The Big Issue. In 2017, she was shortlisted for the Dorothy Porter Award for Poets. And I hear she's just been awarded the 2019 Monash Undergraduate Prize for Creative Writing. Today, in fact. So, congratulations. Tonight, Fiona will be performing her piece, Airtime. It's a story about the most loved and hated musical composition ever performed. That's a big ask. <laughs> On the 29th of August, 1952, several hundred people enter Maverick Concert Hall, New York. The atmosphere is festive, the audience congeal, 
chatty and keen. The house lights go down and a hush deep and wide settles over the room. David Tudor walks across the stage and sits at the piano. The silence intensifies, fed with anticipation. And then the performance begins. After 30 seconds, Tudor lowers the piano lid. He shuffles his sheet music, restarts his stopwatch before lifting the piano lid once more. His body is motionless. The piano keys untouched. The audience begin to murmur. After two minutes and 23 seconds, Tudor closes the lid. By now, the audience discomfort is reaching loud discord. As Tudor restarts his stopwatch, some people are beginning to leave. Nonplus, Tudor lifts the piano lid. Then after one minute and 40 seconds of silence, he stands up, takes a bow, and exits the stage. The performance is complete. And so John Cage's latest composition, four minutes and 33 seconds, has now been premiered. Later, some people would describe this experience of silence as terrifying. I first encountered John Cage whilst visiting New York City in the winter of 2013. When I left Australia, I only packed a denim jacket and a hoodie. The air was so sharp, it felt lacerating. I spent most days in art galleries, my body soaking up the buttery luxury of central heating. This is how I stumbled across the retrospective of Cage's work at the Museum of Modern Art. His musical notation was framed and it hung on the walls. In primary school, I was taught a glib mnemonic um, to, for each, to memorize each treble clef line. Every good boy deserves fruit. These musical scores consisted of notes scattershot across the wide expanse of each page. Cage cited the French-American artist Michel Duchamp's words as inspiration. A work is not completed by the artist, but it is completed by the listener or the observer so that it can change from one person to another. Yet, as I stood in wet socks and a thin jacket, I wasn't bothered to do much work at all. On the 16th of January 2004, the BBC Symphony Orchestra gave the UK's first orchestral performance of four minutes and 33 seconds. 
it was scheduled for a live radio broadcast. This posed an issue for the BBC engineers as any silence lasting longer than 10 seconds would trigger the emergency backup track. The dead air switch had to be dismantled. Dead air. A doctor once described my left ear as dead. Despite being born into a body that is both hearing and deaf, it's only recently that I've been thinking about sound and silence. The original meaning of the word deaf is empty, barren. And this is how many people perceive silence as an absence, as a space or a void, or even as something terrifying. Whereas the earliest meaning of the word sound is something free from special defect or injury, to be of sound health. That idea is sound. This house is sound. An audiogram or a hearing test is based on the musical scale. And yet the interpretation of this scale differs. In medicine, sound is functional, with deafness precisely defined as an inability to detect certain decibel ranges, a malfunction. The narrowness of this feels stifling. Whereas in music, the musical scale is merely the starting point of a conversation. Gaps and spaces and pauses are valued and considered to be just as important as the sharp hiss of a hi-hat or the dull beat of a foot pedal against the belly of a drum. John Cage approached sound and composition from a place of movement understanding that sounds travel, settle, collide, meld, infuse and fill spaces. Nothing, not even silence, is anchored to treble clef lines. There is no dead air. I'm not sure if I like Cage's four minutes and 33 seconds, but that's hardly the point. It makes me work. It makes me listen. Thanks, Fiona. Fiona Murphy, airtime. And I love any kind of radio references. I love that dead air kind of idea, isn't it? It's such a beautiful thing. Um, last up, we're going to hear from Erin Kyan who is a disabled queer and trans writer, performer and podcast producer. His work in spoken word and fiction podcasts stretches comfortably between darkness and hope, touching on themes of vulnerability, courage, desire and pain, but always reaching for a resolution of hope and joy. Such a beautiful way to finish, isn't it? He's also one of the producers of the Love and Luck podcast. Tonight, Aaron is presenting a piece called Yesterday. It's an examination of his own relationships with yesterdays, exploring not just what memories are, but how they can feel. And just to let you know, there's a bit of discussion around anxiety and panic attacks. So, there you are.
How do you feel about memories? I have a complicated relationship with them. Why is that? Even my happiest memories make me feel sad to remember them. And I've never quite been able to figure out why. Do any memories make you feel happy? Sure. It's not like I don't feel happy when I remember happy things. It's just that I also feel sad. What kind of sad? It depends. If it's a sad memory, then it's a nice, clean, and simple sad. But if it's a happy memory, it's a tangled, translucent sad that sits at the root of my spine. That seems very visceral. Memory is visceral. What kind of sad do you feel when you remember being a child? I feel that as a dread in my gut. Like a looming cloud of inevitability. I had a pretty good childhood at home. I had a very supportive and loving family, but outside the home, childhood was hell. It was like a pressure, all the weight of violence and poverty and trying to hide blood from my mother. So even when I remember the good stuff, it's like being in a submarine. Sure, this memory might be nice, but if I open the door to anything else, the water's gonna rush in and drown me. How do you feel when you remember moving to Melbourne? Oh, that was a joyful time. It was so exciting, so liberating to move to Melbourne, to be with people I loved. But that's a bittersweet memory now. I'm not in touch with any of those people anymore. Despite how close we were at the time, our paths diverged a long time ago. You know, the area I first lived in feels like it only exists in a time long ago, like the forest didn't age with me. Whenever I go back, it feels like stepping back in time, and my heart aches with nostalgia. Apparently nostalgia doesn't hurt for everyone, but it does for me. It's like lead in my stomach and chains on my shoulders pulling me down. Pressure. Always pressure. Do you remember your mother's voice? I remember it, but not clearly. I haven't heard Mum's voice since she died. My sister has a recording of her, but I haven't listened to it. Does it make you happy to remember? 
No. It's heartbreaking. Even though she died years ago, I still miss her so much. She's gone. What about meeting your partner? Surely that doesn't make you feel sad. It does, though. Because when I remember meeting my partner, I remember how we both were at that age. How much promise we had, how happy we were. I feel so jealous of my younger self, yet so protective at the same time. I was already pretty messed up at that age, but there was a lot more trauma I went through between then and now. Plus, trauma likes to reinforce itself over time. It gets tighter and it gets sharper. That version of me, he's like a completely different person. He's so much freer, so much more trusting, so much more comfortable. Why did he have to go through everything he did just so he could become me? Why did I have to go through everything I did and leave that kid behind? How about something more mundane? How do you feel about the last time you rode on a tram or the last time you went to a supermarket? The last time I was in a supermarket... I was only getting a couple of things, but they were on opposite sides of the store, and I wore out quickly and got frustrated. I started getting anxious, and I knew I had to just get what I could and go home. It was fine. I got what I needed, and I got home fine. But my body really doesn't cope with supermarkets very well these days. So yeah, I do feel sad about that. How do you feel about the future? It varies, but overall, I'm happy. Despite what impressions I might have given you, I love my life, and I'm really looking forward to what the future holds. So you don't feel sad about the future? How could I? There's no tangle of emotions tied to the future. It hasn't happened yet. I never used to be able to visualize the future, you know? I used to think that inevitably, I wouldn't make it. I couldn't conceptualize a future in which I survived. I couldn't picture myself as an old man. But I can see the future now. And there's nothing sad about that.
Aaron Kine yesterday. It was beautiful. Um, well, that's about it for this evening. Um, I want to thank everybody for coming along tonight. I know it's been cold and wet outside, so making the effort to come down is great. Thanks to all the writers and performers this evening, Fiona Murphy, Erin Kayan, Manisha Angali, Anita Sanders and Daisy Endutar. Thanks to Loop Bar for having us, our wonderful techs, our Emerging Writer Festival creative producer Kirby Fenwick and all the marvellous people at the Emerging Writers Festival. If you want to know more about any of the artists tonight, uh, you can take a look at the website, the EWF website, and for more tickets and info about all the other fabulous events, it's on until the 29th, you can go to emergingwritersfestival.org.au. You can also make a donation while you're there before the end of the financial year, tax deductible, and helps us all make good art. And that's all we want to do, isn't it? I'm Camilla Hannon. Thanks a lot for coming along. Kirby again. I hope you enjoyed listening to that. I certainly did. And now for something a little extra. Here's my response to the theme yesterday. Tech me edited. <laughs> Beep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that's all good. All right. I'll just get you to just test the mic. So just say something. All right, Kirby. Perfect. This is your dad. <laughs> Perfect. Yep, that's my dad, Ian Fenwick. Light brown hair, brown eyes, half a finger missing on his left hand. He's got a moustache that I've only ever once seen him shave off. He quickly grew it back. We have the same chin and the same thin hair and the same perfectionist streak. So, Dad, I want to talk to you about a photo and I think you know the one that I want to talk to you about mm, yes because we've been looking for it and I haven't been able to find it you've probably got it <laughs> he's right I probably do but I've searched everywhere for it and I can't find it can you um, can you describe the photo for me it's a picture of me and Avi having a beer on a barbecue that we were just building that day the photo I want to talk to my dad about is seared into my memory. Well, I thought it was. I thought I could recall it quite clearly. But as I talk to my dad, as I try and pull pieces of my memory together, it feels like it's fading away. In the photo, my dad and his friend Ovi are standing behind a red brick barbecue in the backyard of our then home in Footscray. They're smiling, looking towards the camera. There's cans of beer in the photo, in their hands or on top of the barbecue. I can't remember. Familiar green cans. You know the ones. It's a sunny day. You can tell because they're squinting a little. I'm there too. And I'm in the photo too. Yeah. What am I doing? Oh, I'm sitting on the barbecue, I think. 
Dad's right. I am sitting on the barbecue. In fact, I'm curled up in a little ball, my face tucked into my knees. And I, I don't know if this is a real memory or not, but I can still feel the heat on my back. I can feel it now, the warmth of the sun. I figure I'm three, or maybe I'm four, and it's the summer before we left Footscray. But I can't be sure, and neither can Dad. And you would have been, you would have been quite young in that photo, because I would have only been three or four. Um, still in Melbourne, I probably would have been about 27. Yeah. I think, somewhere around there. Who is Ovi, or who was Ovi? Ovi's passed away now, but Ovi was a friend that we met down the pub when we used to drink on Friday night with the boys down the railway hotel. And John was one of those, well, Ovi was his, it was John, John was his name, but Ovi, everyone just called him Ovi. That was part of his surname. But yeah, he was a really nice bloke. You'd give anybody a hand if you just asked, you know, like, and always happy Larry have a beer you know he was a really nice bloke a gentleman he was he used to work at the butchers and he would you know come in and he'd have scotches and stuff and he didn't make no money at him and he just got him from people at the pub his friends and whatever they cost him is what you paid but that was John you know he was just a nice bloke he didn't ever cause any shit with anyone he was just always had a laugh and a joke or you know he's just a really decent bloke it's just a, he was smart yeah yeah he was a very educated man he wasn't he wasn't just a dill you know he was very smart you know like it's funny bugger he taught me how to make a coffee he said you're making it wrong he says you got to put the milk in the coffee first before you put hot water otherwise you burn the coffee he said so i remember that at his place we went round one one christmas we went round there you kids come too I remember it vividly because we went round to, before we even got to John's house, a hailstorm hit big time in Footscray and the roads were covered in ice and I had to go back to work because the hailstones, when I went back to work, had smashed all the fiberglass roofing in the factory and I had a timber kitchen in there I was doing so I had to go and move everything and some of it had to dry. But like, you know, that's what John was like. He'd come around and have a barbecue with him and... You know, he was just a top bloke. That's just the way he was. So, you know. And why was he in that photo that day? Why, why was that photo taken? Because he just rocked up with a slab of beer and pizzas to come around and see me barbecue because we'd been talking about the backyard, doing the backyard up. But that's what he was like. Oh, I'll go around and see Fenner. Off he'd go and he'd walk because he lived just in Yarrabool. And he'd rock up. <laughs> That's just how he was. I asked my dad if he remembered that photo being taken. He didn't. I don't remember it being taken either. I don't remember that afternoon. I don't remember the conversation my dad and Ovi would definitely have been having while they had a beer together. I don't remember why I was curled up like that on the barbecue. Was I okay? Maybe I'd been fighting with my brothers and was seeking the sanctuary and safety of Dad. 
Who knows? The thing about memories is that you can't really trust them. Because our memories aren't perfect. They're prone to corruption, to distortion. We forget. We misremember. One day blurs into the next, and we stop being able to see the details. Maybe that's why we lean so heavily on photos. The photo must be correct, yeah? An accurate representation of the memory, of the moment. But maybe that's not right either. Ovi lives in the yesterdays of our lives now, in my dad's memories, and in mine too. He lives in that photo, and I'm sure hundreds more that were taken of him in the many years of his life. But neither the memories nor the photos are accurate representations of him, of my dad, of me. I'm still looking for that photo. It's somewhere safe, I'm sure. Tucked away into an old photo album, maybe. Stashed between a bunch of pictures of unknown waterfalls from a school camp I don't remember going on. Or maybe it's with a bunch of photos from my high school days. Images of faces that were once so familiar. And that I now only see when I scroll Facebook. It's somewhere safe, that picture. Of Dad and Ovi and me. Somewhere safe. And Ovi's standing next to you and there's definitely at least one can of EB in that photo. Yeah. They're on the barbecue. You always had a beer we did them days. Always. Our theme music for the podcast is the Magical Huntley's Please from their EP Songs In Your Name. You can check them out on Facebook at Huntley Music and listen to their recently released debut album, Low Grade Buzz, wherever you normally find your music. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge that First Nations peoples are the first storytellers of this land and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and to the Elders of the land this podcast reaches. <laughs>